Hello and welcome to Why Button, the podcast that asks why we care about video games. I'm your host, Kyle Starr. On this show, I interview creators, enthusiasts, journalists, and media personalities about their origins with video games, what keeps them so interested in the medium, and what excites them about the future. On this episode, I interview Stephen J. Hilger, co-host of the Into the Aether podcast. For those keeping score, I've completed interviewing the Triforce of Into the Aether, the wisdom, the power, the courage, and I'm never going to tell you which one is which, but I've caught them all. It took a while for Stephen and I to connect due to a couple false starts, and therefore he was in the uh, thick of the summer break for Into the Aether. I like to think that I gave him an opportunity to warm up for the main gig when they come back. This is the first time I've connected with Steven face-to-face. I'm a huge fan of his work on Into the Aether and was happy to experience and capture the same infectious and big energy he brings to that show. While we do talk a lot about Into the Aether, a large portion of this chat swirls around childhood, art, imagination. It's one of my favorite conversations on this show. Steven Allen Hilger, uh, thanks for joining me. <laughs> Allen? I like that. I took, a, I took a big swing. Was it even close? Kind of. Uh, it's Paul is my middle name. But oh. I, don't, I don't know if I've ever revealed that. So you're about as close as you could have been, you know? Well, I, I was assuming it was Alan spelt with one L. Uh, so yeah. I got four, four letters. So. Yeah, you had a good Wordle first try there for sure. That's um, awesome. That's going to be a new theme. I had a couple episodes back. I had the two Pauls from uh, Two Player Productions at Double Fine. Oh, amazing. Show, and now wow. I've, got, I've got yet a third Paul uh, on, on the show. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Proud to take the bronze of the Pauls. Welcome to Paul Button. <laughs> it's almost Paul Bunyan. I like it. Well, thank you for joining Y Button. Thank you, thank you for uh, for for hopping on the show with me. We uh, for folks at home who are listening, we've had a, uh, a false start to this a while back. We were supposed to record a few weeks ago, and then uh, a, a fire at work for me um, popped up as soon as we hit record, and we had to bail. and uh, And then I think you had some some time away as well. So yeah, it was one of those like I can record like tonight or in seven weeks. And it's like, ugh, like <laughs> neither of these are good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me awesome cool and and i should say up front too i'm a very and this may have been apparent on the brendan bigley episode and uh there will be an aj there well by the time this recording comes out there is an aj falari episode but i am a huge fan of into the aether i'm a huge fan of your work and what you do and so this is a, a real thrill for me to have you on the show so thank you for everything that you've you've put out there and all the uh uh i guess inspiration for this show and i wow. positive positive vibes and, and positivity you've given me um over the the last few years um so yeah, I'll just start there and make you feel really embarrassed. I'm extremely flattered. It's it's really nice to hear that. It's it's a weird thing. I'm sure you experienced this too, like uh, doing a podcast because you don't you hear from people and like you know you can engage with listeners, but there isn't that immediate feedback. So it is nice to hear that because I think I I often forget it's not just like a private call between Brendan and myself that like people are actually listening to, you know, uh, so I'm really glad it's had that positive effect for you. That's lovely to hear. Some folks have, have listened to, I'm sure, listened to Into the Aether. There's uh, some of the folks who listen to the show do, you know, cross over into your world and were probably introduced to Y Button through Into the Aether. And the folks who have listened to the Brendan Bigley episode or the AJ Flowery episode at this point um, know a bit about the show. But can you tell me a bit about yourself? And I guess, um, who are you? Who is... <laughs> Who is this? Who is Stephen Paul Hilger? Wow, that's a good question. I, I've been asking myself that these days. Um, no, but I mean, uh, Into the Aether, I'll start there and see if I could find the self-confidence to answer your second question. Uh, Into the Aether is a low-key video game podcast, how we describe it. It really just began, Brendan and I had collaborated in, in the past. We had written for a video game website for like 
a year or so shortly after I graduated college. And we had also just always like, like we went to high school together, but we were never like in the same circle, but we always wanted to be. There was always this weird like appreciation from afar, like this kind of like weird acknowledgement of like, we would probably be really good friends, but we've, we, we were not in the same class or given the chance to like hang out. So it wasn't until like I graduated college that we started hanging out and then also like quickly learning that we just really clicked creatively. It's a, it's a hard thing to find. Like I, I remember in college, like I have a background in performing and in comedy and stuff and writing and I draw a lot. So like that's kind of the mix of stuff that I do. But in college, I remember kind of being like my first mission when I got to school was like, I want to find people to collaborate with. Like I want to find like my creative team. And I've always just been like attracted to that type of, I don't know, like creative space. Like I, there are some things that I'm comfortable taking on by myself, but I think especially in college when you're like trying to find your place in a social setting, like the same way some people want to join like a team or, or whatever, like that was like my drive. And mm. so I had had an experience like meeting people, like bonding over shared interests and then trying to collaborate. And it's a really hard thing to find like when it works well because it's a very special relationship that you have to discover and you can only really discover it by like trying multiple times brendan and i i think just kind of knew like oh like we are on the same page and we kind of complement each other well and so there was always that desire to do something together it wasn't and then you know our ill-fated attempts to make that happen i moved to chicago like 20 minutes after we started hanging out and then <laughs> that kind of you know it wasn't until years later that he reached out and was like hey like i miss talking about video games like do you want to record something together like he's always been interested in in podcasts like, even before they were like a mainstream thing he's always five years ahead of everything he's just that kind of guy and, <laughs> that's and what i, I call him brennan five years ahead of yeah, yeah. That's, he's that's... got the cooler middle name i got i got saint paul and he got the five years ahead guy <laughs> but yeah when he reached out that was the beginning and that really as much as we've grown and we're now like thinking about stuff for the show and making plans that I don't think we would ever have thought would be possible when we started. Like that really is the heart of the show that we try to maintain is like, it's just us trying to keep in touch and like share our passion for games. And that's what we do. We just talk about games that we really enjoy and we make an effort to highlight like games that we like. And in recent years, it's also been, I think we've started to kind of lean retro. So like the structure of the show is basically every week we'll bring up games we're playing that we're enjoying and that can be new stuff. It could be old stuff. It's been nice kind of having a loose structure for the weekly format. And then around once a month, we will do what we call a bonus episode. And that is always about like one game or series so that will be kind of a deeper dive into like one game um so we've done a lot of those at this point and that has kind of become in some ways like the main event of the show like i think mm. you know it's interesting to see kind of what eras of games we kind of gravitate towards and in more recent years we started doing our season premiere all about one console so we started doing that with the game boy advance which you made incredible uh, Game Boy advances for us for that giveaway. Thank you for letting me be a part of that, by the way. That was so fun. It was incredible. Like We were happy to feature your work. And that's the thing, too. And that, that has kind of started more recent conversations about game preservation. And like we've done these episodes where our mission is just to highlight 
all the games we like for that console but then we realize like there's no way to directly legally play a lot of this stuff yeah which is really sad so it's been it's been i mean we just uh it's not out yet but we have recorded at the time of this recording we have already recorded the dreamcast premiere and that is a really interesting era so i think what it's kind of started as like just a way for us to speak to our passion for games um has also become like us learning about game history and applying it to the present as well which has been really rewarding like i definitely think i know significantly more about my own tastes and about game history than when we started so it's been a really rewarding process yeah and it, there's a few things that that you mentioned there i think one was you talked about the chemistry with you and brendan and and you know you talked about the heart of the show and i truly think that you know when i think of your show i this Sounds kind of gross as I'm saying. It. I think of like hearts. Like that is like <laughs> there, there, there's such a warmth to the show, and you feel the chemistry in the show. You feel the bond you two have, and now you've gone five seasons of this five is five years, or, or are we starting year six? Where where are we in the timeline? I think it's been five years, and we're starting season six. And you've so. recorded. I mean, and it's weekly. It's a weekly show, but you've certainly recorded well more than than what would be a weekly show. You guys have probably <laughs> yeah. done double that at this point. But yeah, I we we we. I think I've earned like a, a mixed reputation for episode length. Although I think over like a normal episode will usually be like 90 minutes to two hours, two hours on the longer side. The bonuses will kind of be as long as they need to. So like the, the Dreamcast episode is a absurd length. I'll warn you right now. But it's weird. I mean, the, the episodes we release that are like gigantic tend to do pretty well. So like it's it's nice that our hubris is rewarded where we can like just and I think it's it's less that we want to make this episode as long as possible. It's not ever our mission. Our mission is to like let the episode be as long as it needs to be. And I think that usually works. Uh, so I'm glad we can release a five hour episode and, and no one laughs at us anymore. We proved them wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, we I think the fans, myself included, look forward to those long ones. You know, if you give us an eight hour episode, I'm I'm here for it. I just get worried that I'm going to get behind on the next episode that's coming. Right. <laughs> By the time I'm done with your with a one of these huge episodes, if it's eight hours long or whatever, I've got three more in the tank and I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to those right before the next one comes out. So I'm constantly trying to like, it's a race against time with, with your show for me, but I also like that. Yeah. Um, and I do find that there is sort of an evergreenness to your episodes where I can go back to an episode that you recorded two years ago and it still feels relevant. You, you know, as you mentioned, you talk, you do talk about a lot of retro stuff on the show, not necessarily purposefully, but it's what's what you're playing now and what you're into. You don't you're not staying necessarily up to date with the latest and greatest or whatever just come out and focusing on a review of that. You're just talking about what you're playing and what you enjoy. And that could be something that was released 20 years ago. Right. And you're just bringing it to the table. Um, I discovered this because of this. And you have turned me and I think many others on to lots of lots of games that would be outside of their outside of their periphery because it, they're just not in the zeitgeist right now or they, they came from from an era past right so yeah yeah I think I think that's I'm really happy to hear that um and I think that that's something that I'm really proud of with the show specifically like encouraging people who may think like oh this isn't for me to try it out because and that's also like I think video games are are new enough that they're you know generations that still think of it as a toy or as like it's not taken as seriously as other art forms but even still like people around my age or our age like growing up the marketing of games was so overall rancid that I feel like for a lot of people they probably felt bullied out of even trying to enjoy them you know mm -hmm. and like 
not to say that, you know, not to give ourselves too much credit, but like, it's been really great to see people in the discord and people in my life too, who had convinced themselves or had been convinced by outside forces that this wasn't for them suddenly be on their fourth run of Fire Emblem Three Houses or like, <laughs> you know, have Excel spreadsheets of like persona fusion strategies. And like, that's, that's what I love because it's the minute you apply this isn't for me to any other medium, it sounds so silly and so backwards. Like, oh, yeah, books aren't for me or, you know, and I know it's different with games because the other side of it, too, is that there's so much it's such a big ask, like financially and time wise. And also just like I have to remember that I've been playing these things my whole life. So there's some muscle memory that I just take for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I had a friend who is is more recent to games and she played a game specifically that had a rotating camera on a joystick just to get used to that control scheme, which I wouldn't have thought of like as a thing to get used to. But that's like, again, if you didn't grow up with this stuff, it's it's a pretty intimidating ask. So yeah, all that to say, like, I'm I'm very happy that, you know, an extension of the show has been this influence of like people trying something they maybe thought that they couldn't experience themselves. Where did you actually start with video games? What was your first what was your first console? I should start there, actually. That's a good question. So I, I was born in nineteen ninety, which I feel like is, you know, the beginning of the Nintendo like dominance mm. era. My family already had an NES by the time I was born. And my first like formative memories playing games are largely with the Super Nintendo. But even those are kind of foggy. I just I have a very concrete memory of that hazy time playing Super Nintendo as like a three, four, five-year-old with my older sister and us referring to the NES as old Nintendo. So like (laughs) even from birth, the NES never, it was always retro. It's always been, even in the time where it was only like a few years old, it was still old Nintendo. So Super Nintendo, I would, I would guess would be like my first, although it was sort of like we had both and we played both off and on. The first console that I remember like more directly and felt more like, oh, this is mine. And this is like uh, a time in my life where I'm playing games on, on a level past like, cause I think when I was a kid, games were largely social. Like my parents and I played together my sister and I played together, you know, friends would come over. I, I imagine I probably thought of playing Batman Returns the same way I thought of playing with my action figures, you know, but playing like Super Mario 64 for the first time at like age seven, I remember that very, like, I remember having my mind actually like melt, just being <laughs> like, oh, I can move in any direction. Are you kidding? It makes me sound so old, but like that was really incredible. And I, I would yeah. say N64 is like my foundation overall. N64 PS1 era is kind of where I think I was starting to develop my own taste and wasn't just sort of mm-hmm. playing what was put in front of me. It's interesting you say that about the control. Like I didn't, I had never thought really or been that considered about thinking about, you know, growing up with input. I, I talk on the show a lot about growing up with games and growing up with the medium and seeing how the medium evol- evolves. And I think about it from every time I've said that, I've thought about it from more of a software level. Like um, yeah. this is just an action platformer at, or, you know, and story was very, you know, not really considered in the early days. And now you have games that their whole point is narrative, right? And that's all it's trying to to 
that's all you're trying to get out of it or or games that are you know built like movies like cinema basically uh the last of us or uncharted anything that naughty dog's putting out basically is is sure. meant to feel yeah. like a movie i had never really given much consideration to the fact that we grew up with a d-pad and two buttons and then a d-pad and and four buttons or some shoulder but six buttons you know whatever it is and we saw the growth of of input devices as well and then come the nintendo 64 just like you're saying with with super mario 64 you now have an analog stick and we're playing with the camera basically we're you know that was unheard of until that point to be able to control the camera uh, at least at that level basically um, yeah and we've just seen that input input grow and grow and grow all the way to what we are where we are now with potentially vr and all of that but our generation got to experience all that and grow with the input as you know as well where if you try to introduce somebody to gaming today and i hear this from other parent you know from parents and, and others where if you try to put a 3d game in front of a child, they have a very difficult time spatially figuring out how to control this thing. I am not only controlling the, 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 character in front of me, but I have to maintain this camera as, as well. And it is very advanced. It's very tricky, which I think is why a lot of folks who are new to the medium start at with, with 2D or just touching on a device, you know, something that has fairly simple inputs to it. And then through this show, um, it's very interesting to learn where people started, like w- where they have that formative, not formative, I guess, yet, but where they recall getting into games but then the consoles that really uh, help them build that sort of taste for games, right? Yeah. Where it, it didn't, it no longer, it it jumped the gap from becoming a toy or from being a toy to being something different, to opening up other doors or worlds or or opening up your imagination about what's possible. For me, it was, I have vivid memories, maybe not vivid memories, but maybe it's that same foggy but concrete memories of yeah. playing Mega Man 2 on an NES at my babysitter's oh, house nice. when I was very, very young. And I grew to, I think, appreciate the NES because my cousin had one and other people had one. And I always want to go play it because it was a video game. I wanted to touch this thing and play with this thing. Um, but I never had a console until um, the Sega Genesis. Or no, I had a Game Boy and then the Sega Genesis. And that's kind of where like, I had my own toy to play with. I had my own thing to play with. But just like you, once I once I saw Mario 64 and started playing with you know Nintendo 64 games, I think it started becoming a little bit different. For me, I think the PS2 and playing things like Final Fantasy X sort of oh, yeah. opened that. Like I started seeing where this is now. I don't necessarily know if saying cinematic or, or cinema is the right way to say, but I could start seeing these like big stories, these big narratives the potential here was was with ps2 and that was actually my high school uh years but that's kind of where i kind of lean in and i'm actually looking right over now at my nintendo 64 and my ps2 and that's for whatever <laughs> reason those are the retro consoles that i have set aside and i think that there's a, a reason for that right like there's a reason yeah. I, I lean into those two so yeah i think you're right to point out the the cinematic nature of that generation because i think something about like PS2, PS3, even more so. I think as games were sort of like beckoning to be taken more seriously by the mainstream, they sought to emulate TV and movies more directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that led to stuff like Uncharted and Last of Us, you know. But at the same time, what, I, what I've really learned doing the show and playing a lot of stuff for the show is I'm learning that my definition of narrative in cinematic is widening. You know, I think like in a more direct way, like, yeah, absolutely. Like Uncharted, Last of Us, Final Fantasy X, very cinematic games. Final, I was thinking about Final Fantasy X when you asked me that question, because actually PS2 was the first system I bought for myself. That was like the point where my parents were like, enough. Like, if you're going to keep doing this, you got to work at summer camp as a counselor. Well, that was my choice. But that was like when I continued it on my own. And yeah, Final Fantasy X was a big deal. That was like 
the first voice acted Final Fantasy. Yeah, man. I kept thinking about Final Fantasy X as I was playing Dreamcast because there are a handful of really good RPGs on the Dreamcast. So I'm like, these are so good. Why didn't no one play them? And then I look at the dates and it's like in the black hole vortex of Final Fantasy X. <laughs> no! But yeah, going back to cinematic and narrative, like... I think we use it to describe games that ha- are like cutscene heavy or focusing on spectacle in some way. Uh, and narrative, we think about, you know, also cutscenes or maybe like a lot of text. But I would argue you can say like a game's narrative doesn't have to be that. I think there's a lot of narrative in just the world design of a game like Breath of the Wild or Shadow of the Colossus, where like there may not be something happening directly there may not be like information being given to the player in like a line of dialogue or a cutscene, but just being in that place and the way it's designed the way it like looks and feels is a storytelling moment even if it's not direct or reminiscent of what we get in tv or movies and that's i think that's where i'm most interested in kind of exploring games is seeing like what can they do uniquely you know i think a lot of games in the 2010s once we kind of got past the we can be movies it was like we can be choose your own adventure movies and we got stuff like mass effect and games that were maybe like triple a versions of D in a lot of ways like trying to capture that scope of role-playing possibility but give it more kind of flair and polish um, and make it feel like bigger for mainstream audiences and that's really cool and i mean i'm a huge mass effect fan and i love games that are choice driven but again like i think that that i'm just learning that narrative can be more subtle and cinematic doesn't have to mean cutscenes. i i hope to one day have more language to back that up but that's just been (laughs) one of my more recent observations in doing the show (laughs) and in doing the show i'm I'm gonna zero in on that a little bit um you mentioned playing so many games for the show you guys are also on have been on a little bit of a I don't want to call it hiatus. You just you sort of cut, this, you know, you ended your last season, you're gearing up for the next season. You took this two month summer break off. But before that, you were and probably still are playing a ton of games. I'm very curious what your relationship with games is now and maybe how does that compare or how has that evolved um, over time into where it is now? Because I, I yeah. you know, you play quite a few games. So yeah. has it always been the case, I guess, is the question. Some people are like concerned, I think. They're like, are you all right? Are you sick? Like, what, what's up? It, it hasn't really changed much. I think the biggest thing, I mean, it depends. I think like because we have a pretty flexible structure and because like games we're bringing to the show on a weekly basis, I think we try to make an effort to say like, have we played this game for like an hour or two? And this is like a first impressions conversation. Or did we like binge this over the weekend and we're like coming with unhinged chaotic energy about like our love for this thing? So I think like there's no pressure for weekly episodes to like really get to a certain point in a game because we're open to bringing it up more than once. So then that's happened before. And we've even had cases where like uh, like famously Dragon Quest XI, I brought to the show like pretty early on and I'd played like a decent chunk of it and like liked it enough. But I was just sort of like, yeah, this game's pretty cool. I, I felt like I liked it enough to bring it up, but I don't know if, if, it, if I'm going to stick around. And then Brendan had like a religious experience with it. And then I felt the need to go back to it and then also really fell in love with it like my second time around. So I think like Allowing for that flexibility of returning to games, I think, allows for cases like that, where it's not just like a one and done. I got my take. I'm moving on. It's like our relationship with media can change over time. Mm -hmm. Um, But to answer your question, I think the biggest change has just been like I have to be pretty diligent with how I'm spending my time on other things. So like we both work full time. I also draw a lot like I'm I'm an artist and I have my own like 
comic projects I'm working on. I'm hoping to share more of that, you know, in the near future, because that's something that's it's been like super private. And I sometimes get like it's it's weird. You know, I think I've always been drawn to many pursuits like in college I you know did acting and I was also writing and uh drawing was like a hobby then and then kind of became more of a serious pursuit later in my life so that's all great and it's like pursuing different art forms you learn about the other one when you're doing one of them in a weird way like I think you learn about acting when you're writing or you learn about art when you're writing it's it's hard to describe but I, I do think it's like I subjectively love kind of having that variety but the flip side of that is just like eight different versions of imposter syndrome so like it's always just like i swear i'm all these things guys which you know is totally just on my end but like that is going back to like you know college and creative partnerships like there are eras of my life where i think i'm more active in one place like in college i was definitely performing way more than i was maybe writing and i always i think i always want to do the other thing when i'm doing the other thing you know of course yeah but all that to say like because of that i have to be like okay like what am i prioritizing with my time like the show drawing my job seeing friends you know there was a time in my life where i really like put a lot of my personal needs aside just to like be as productive as possible Mm -hmm. and that was a poisonous behavior don't do that Uh, make time (laughs) for your friends and for sleep and stuff and yeah for the show i think like Games have always been social for me and especially as an adult, like games have been like a really big stress release. Like there was a solid year of my life where like every day after work, I would just come home and play Overwatch for like two hours. And that was like my wind down game. Even before doing the show, though, like I did still have an interest in checking out new things. I think the big game that kind of got me back into checking out new releases was Persona 5. Because mm. I before then, I was pretty comfortable like playing Overwatch and then like revisiting RPGs of the past, like replaying Dragon Age or Skyrim or Mass Effect. And then Persona 5 came out and I was like, what? <laughs> this, this, this is possible? They make games like this now? <laughs> like it really... It really felt like everything I had kind of liked about Final Fantasy, like that sense of ensemble and character, but like they really made a game out of being good friends, you know, like they just made a game out of friendship yeah, uh, or about friendship, um, like mechanically. So that was a big moment. And then, you know, a year later, the show started. So I guess the biggest like relationship change has just been like, I think we've kind of developed a natural rhythm of like Brendan and I will just play whatever we're genuinely interested in that week because that way it won't feel forced when we record and then we'll bring up like, oh, like I I was playing this this week or, you know, I was drawn to this. And I find when we kind of play organically like what we want, there's a weird kind of thread throughout the month where like we might be like drawn to certain genres or like exploring certain series. The only time it becomes a little bit more strict with like, I actually can't play what I want. I have to play Chrono Trigger or something, which I always want to play. But when we do bonuses or when we're like gearing up for game of the year or like our season premieres, which are about one console, I would say the the, the time where I actually have to like not... I, I can't play anything else is like the lead up to the Dreamcast recording. I had to only play Dreamcast stuff. And I loved that. It was really cool. But it is like it does feel like more of a mission and less of a pastime. It doesn't feel like work. We, I think we do a lot to make sure we don't resent playing games. But it also feels like this is something that I have to do. I guess to put it concisely, like I think 
week by week, we try to just do what we would normally do, you know, even if we weren't doing a show and let that be the conversation. And for like bonuses or bigger episodes, it becomes a little bit more of a direct task. But I think we enjoy that, you know, assignment, like we enjoy that work that goes into those episodes, because it leads to a really fun recording. It does warp that experience to not be like, oh, I'm playing this to unwind or to escape or to like, you know, get lost in a game, it becomes more a little bit more analytical in some ways. And if you didn't have the show, would you be playing as many games as you do today? <laughs> no. I think to, <laughs> like, to put it bluntly, no. Um, I definitely think I would probably be finishing more stuff if I had to guess. I'm trying to think of how I was in the in, you know before we started recording. And like I was still playing a lot. I mean, before we did the show, I had been like when I got into Persona 5, I then purchased three and four and beat them both in the span of like a few months, which is wild. Those games are very long. So like something was brewing within me that, you know, was leading to starting a game podcast. But would I on my own will just be like, I'm going to play every Dreamcast game? Probably not. (laughs) Uh, I would probably maybe check out one or two like of interest to me. I think games would still be a big part of my life. And that's that's the big thing, you know, going back to what we're talking about, like when when was the formative entry point? Like when did you like decide or or discover that games were going to be like a big part of your life? It was when they started influencing other parts of my life. Like I remember when Majora's Mask came out. I started drawing my own masks and brought them to school. Whoa. And still to this day, I feel like as an artist, a lot of my style I find is influenced by like a lot of, you know, video game artwork or video game characters. Sure. Like I just find that I draw a lot of inspiration from games in a way that I don't as much from other media. So I think that would not change. I think like my reverence for games and my passion for the games that I love, uh, that was that was always going to be there. But yeah, I think the f- the speed and frequency would be a little bit different uh, in terms of what I'm playing. Yeah, <laughs> you sort of beat me to my next question there uh, with, you know, kind of w- where it started for you again, talking about those those hazy memories and all of that. But the reasons I think why you you know grew attached to this for some people, it's an escape. I think for myself, there was a bit of an escape to it. It, it allowed me to kind of be in another place that I felt may have been more joyous or, or happy. And for others, and I'm hearing from yourself too, it actually was more of like a kind of helped your imagination grow, right? Like, yeah, it, yeah. Like you yeah. saw, you saw, you, you found imagination and you found not necessarily escape, but you found inspiration from the medium. Uh, I think that's what I'm getting at. And I wanted to share it with people too. I mean, like a lot of my closest friendships, like there is usually a game that I have in common with that person, you know, especially friendships from the past, like in college and stuff. One of my closest friends we met in a playwriting class where we were paired together and we just were given a prompt and we basically wrote mass effect fan fiction by accident and then we're like wait you're into this right and then you know we've been friends ever since so like i i, I also one of my truly dorkiest moments as a human being it was in middle school where i would bring like a stack of strategy guides to lunch and i was just like i think i've always just been waiting to start a video game podcast now that i reflect on chapters of my life but like (laughs) specifically like final fantasy 7 like that game truly changed my life and means so much to me and how so do you do you mind if i interrupt you there sure i mean i feel like that game to me was what star wars is or was to a lot of people like there's just that piece of media that does kind of spark your imagination i've talked about this game a lot on the show And we have an episode about it, which I I imagine I reflect on this in some way. But the big thing I always think of, like the statement that comes to mind about that game 
was that it, it showed me that fantasy could be anything, you know? Because I think when we say fantasy, we often think of Tolkien, which is great. I, I love Lord of the Rings and and I love stuff that draws from that. But having this game kind of be set in this like grungy sort of North Jersey, New York, where I'm from, like place, it reminded me of like an industrial area. And it, it weirdly, even though it's this kind of sort of apocalyptic setting, there's something about it that feels like a relatable home. You know, this place that like has visible problems where people are just like getting on with their lives. I don't know if I would have said that as a kid, but I do think there was something weirdly like grounded about it that made me very immersed in the place, but it also still had dragons and magic and stuff in it. And I just, I I found it to be really transportive. And I think that was the game that kind of, you know, I think we all have the things we look for in art. Like we all like are, oh, I love like a good heist or I love like an adventure movie or I love like a romance. And I feel like that game showed me, I, I love an ensemble. Like I really love, an ensemble driven story uh and i (laughs) i've also discovered that a lot of my favorite stories are about kind of learning to open up to people you know one of my favorite miyazaki films is porco rosso which is basically the same arc as cloud it's just this kind of vaguely shitty guy who thinks he's humphrey bogart and doesn't he doesn't believe himself worthy of affection or intimacy or like love basically um and seeing a character kind of break through that i don't know i just find that to be very beautiful mm. so i love an ensemble i love a good arc that's what i learned from Final Fantasy seven uh as, as a nine-year-old <laughs> life lessons right there i think you're right like seeing something like star wars or final fantasy seven where there's an element of like on the surface if you just saw a like concept art or drawing you'd you'd say that's sci-fi but then you start understanding like what's going on or seeing how the world works, the universe works, and all of a sudden it becomes fantasy. But with both of those, and maybe more so with with Final Fantasy, you can see you and the world you live in in this place. Yeah. But with Final Fantasy, like you said, it's in the future, sure, but you can see the sort of like the evils of capitalism and uh, the the corruption that ensues. Um, yeah, that game comes unfortunately more relatable as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. It, that's what exactly what I'm trying to get at. So that relatability, I think, is is interesting. And it's not just specific to the medium of video games, but that story alone, uh, I think, is, is um, you know, you can relate so heavily to it that it, you know, draws can just easily draw you in right yeah i think also on like a more surface level i think that was the game that taught me that like rpgs were my thing like because mm. my my formative games were mostly like uh nintendo platformers which i still love like i i you know i'm very excited for the new mario that's gonna be great but like elephant mario <laughs> no that's an rpg yeah <laughs> i just i really liked sort of the um planning phase of an rpg like the material so every final fantasy kind of works differently but in seven there's a uh, materia system where prior to that game usually characters would be tied to one class so like this this character is a healer or this character is a warrior um but in final fantasy 7 they're not really like every class is sort of like a modern approximation of an old DD class like tifa you could argue is like a monk Aerith is kind of the healer but what materia allows you to do is you can essentially equip these magical orbs into their weapons and armor that will give them different spells and abilities so you have a little bit more flexibility over how each character plays i'm amazed i didn't get into D younger because i i just love that sort of character building process as well 
That sounds like such a jam though. Like you're into performance yeah. and, and, and drama and games and, and fantasy and like D and D sounds like that is you. Let's go back to the question of who is Stephen Paul Hilger. And it could be the dungeon master. The yeah. Dungeon master. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think, you know, I moved to Chicago shortly after graduating college, kind of with the plan of like fully pursuing comedy. So I think that's kind of how I've been seen by most of my friends and kind of what I was known for in college was like acting and, and specifically comedic acting. But I also loved writing and like I, I I loved any any kind of storytelling that was available to me. So I think one of my prouder achievements in college was getting to write this one act play and my friend directed it and we like performed it and having like a audience for something that I had written was also like as gratifying to me as performing in a play too. So I kind of waffled between like which one meant more to me. And then when I graduated, I think I was like, okay, I'm just gonna move to Chicago and like do the comedy thing. And I was doing a lot of performing in my early years there. But then I kind of quickly learned that I, I really missed the creative control of writing. And I also kind of learned that I, I maybe didn't love stand up or sketch or improv as much as I thought I did. Mm -hmm. Like I still loved comedy and performing but i wasn't sure like what outlet was for me because stand-up is like i have nothing but respect for people that like make that work because that is that is the most thankless type of performance there is i did it between the ages of 19 and 25 and i enjoyed it and i found some success with it but like you know i feel like that's one of those things where that has to be like the thing you love or you kind of drop it at some point and, you know, it's been cool to see like colleagues of mine who have stuck with it, like find a lot of success. It's, I mean, it's amazing. I, but I just, I think that's also kind of part of the course with like post-grad life. Like you kind of figure out like, okay, I, I remember just having this feeling of being ankle deep in eight different things and wanting to be knee deep in like two or three. So I think I just had to decide like, what is it that I want to do? And that's when I pivoted to drawing and writing more. And that was amazing. And really, I found a lot of inspiration from that. But I missed, I missed the other thing. I missed performing. And, and what's been so gratifying, kind of in a selfish way with Into the Aether is like, it really has felt like the perfect outlet for me. It kind of feels like all the pieces, not that it's like the end all be all of my performer side, but it's been the perfect thing for me these past five years to like engage with that other half to like be myself, but also be, you know, performing in some capacity. Like I'm not being a character, like I'm being me, but I'm able to tap into the comedy side a little bit. And to like, you know, what I liked about stand up was I was able to kind of be myself and connect with people on stage. And that's what I'm able to do with the show. And also I can live my seven year old dreams of showing up to a lunch table with a stack of game magazines, but people actually want to hear it this time. So <laughs> I, I'm living the dream. I hope that answers your question. I know it's a lot of info at once. No, you did. And you sort of answered yeah. another question I was going to ask. Do you think that background in performance uh, and performing arts has helped you with the show? As a listener, I feel like it totally comes out. Like, you know, I can see your enthusiasm and performance uh, on the show, but it also to carry the show for as long as you all have the five years, plus just countless, countless hours and these long episodes, like you're able to do that without seeing seemingly without any problem or issue. And you're just having fun with it the whole time. For me, it's a struggle just to get through an hour, an hour and a half of this show until like I'm on <laughs> afterward. I'm like, oh my God, my brain's melting. What am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think it has. I mean, especially the improv part of it. Like I, I, I haven't done like, you know, improv on stage in a very long time, but I've always liked kind of being a bit on my feet. 
And I think the the big thing I've learned in my years, like performing and, and specifically with improv is like really trusting the ensemble, trusting your scene partner, you know? And I think Brendan and I, I think have a lot of trust in each other. Like, I think once we did that episode where we didn't even have any games, Brendan had just changed his PlayStation username and that was an episode and it was like a good one. We were like, we can do whatever the hell we want at this point. <laughs> like we don't, we don't need to do anything. Uh, but I think kind of knowing and that's the other thing, too, is like, I know that there are people in my life who listen to the show and in the nicest way possible, they don't really care about games, but they just like our banter. And I'm glad that that can like that it's enjoyable, even if you don't know what 13 Sentinels is, you know, like, I think that that's 100 that, percent. that's something that we kind of hoped for. Um, and I'm glad that that works for some people. But yeah, I think I don't see it as like a performance, but. That's also just kind of who I am. Like I, I've always, you know, as a kid figuring out like what is my hobby or what is my thing, like trying every sport, trying, you know, Boy Scouts and band and all of that. Like it really, once I was able to do theater, that's where I kind of found like, oh yeah, this is like, this clicks very nicely. I did like soccer. Shout out to soccer for just being like a nice fall run. But theater and, and you know, art class were were definitely like, the things that lit my brain up as a kid. Mm. You've mentioned it a few times where I'm going to move kind of straight back into video games. Uh, yeah, please do. <laughs> no, this is all interesting because I, I do think it all sort of connects, right? For the, so the heart of the, the show, this show, you know, asking about why and why each individual guest cares about games. You hear a lot of the same themes. You hear a lot of differences. And I think a lot of it stems from where we were introduced to games and why uh, or or what impact it had on us from the beginning. And we see how the way we think about games affect other parts of our lives. One thing I did not expect to come up on the show quite often is how games can relate to music. And I had never mm. made that connection. And I have a, I'm very enthusiastic about music. You can see my record collection behind yeah. me. Um, and your guitar. It, and my guitar. I've got a couple other guitars in, in the uh, closet. That's like, awesome. I was in punk bands in high school and have always just had this love and enthusiasm for music. And it's not just like, oh, listening is, is great. And these are cool lyrics or a cool song, but it's like digging through the liner notes and being able to figure out like, oh, this band was inspired by this band or this band is thanking this band. And let's, let me listen to that band or this person plays on this song. And like that sort of like going, you start kind of unraveling and going back in history. And I've talked to a few other guests about this, this thing of like the, the same thing kind of happens with games, right? Especially, I mean, because this medium is so, I don't know if it's in, if it's in its infancy, it's come up again a couple times on the show. Is it infancy? Is it a, is it a high school kid now? Is it a college? <laughs> we don't really know where the medium is because it's going to be something completely different in another 20 or 30 years, right? It's just going to keep evolving. But every game that comes out now is so, you can draw connection, like direct connections to games that have come out prior to that. Um, yeah. You know, talking about how ITA has kind of gone in a little bit of a, a retro bent uh, just naturally over, over time, I think it's because the connections to the, the, you know, the newer games bridged, you know, back to those old ones. So I don't know, the long way of me saying that, like, there is this connection between the way a lot of people treat music and the way people treat games is like, you can go back in the past and, and, and look at some of these things. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Well, I guess that goes for anything. If you if you're a you you tell me you're an artist. If you draw, <laughs> you you're likely pulling inspiration from things that you have experienced yourself, right? And yeah, and yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of how you know if you're a big fan of something is if you if you get a thrill out of tracing influence, you know. Because I think right. especially that's when, what when I was say. thank you. Yeah, when I was younger, you know, like I remember, like I don't know why I keep talking about my childhood, but I guess it's implicitly linked to 
we're inherently linked to games in some ways. But I remember like I've also just been thinking about how much I miss Borders. And I remember like in eighth grade, that's when I also kind of got into music and I would I would get like the bands I was really into in eighth grade and still am are Nirvana and Radiohead. And I just remember trying to figure out like, what were the bands that led to this? You know, and then that's how I discovered like the Pixies and, you know, bands before then even. And that was really cool. I think tracing the influence with games is interesting because I think and this is something that I talked about recently with our friend Alana when we were talking about game design is that like directly I don't want to say copying but I feel like you see it's almost more welcome or invited in games to sort of like more blatantly kind of wear your influence on your sleeves so like there'll be a game like uh, Hollow Knight that comes out and then suddenly like there's like 30 games trying to be like Hollow Knight and then in the case of it being successful, then you have a new genre name like Souls Likes, you know? And I think what's been interesting about like a lot of the recent AAA games, like stuff like Elden Ring and Tears of the Kingdom, is that like the influence people are tracing is not obvious. Like when you play Elden Ring, it weirdly feels a lot like Dragon's Dogma. It feels a lot, you know, Breath of the Wild is obviously there, but you can also think back to even, you know, more to the past stuff like Simon's Quest. Like I feel like Elden Ring in some ways kind of feels like the promise of sort of uh, ambitious but not fully executed rpgs from the 90s or before even and then with tears of the kingdom the big joke is like oh this is just banjo kazooie nuts and bolts which you know i i i wouldn't have guessed that the new zelda would be pulling from that game for influence and i don't know if they did to be fair but it is it is like fascinating to see like the influence is not always linear is the point i'm trying to make mm. like the things as like certain trends come and go or certain styles of design become sort of the standard we see games from the past kind of echo in different years like i think uh I, it kind of feels like the era, I mean, open world games are still very much what AAA is going for, but it does feel like they have changed dramatically, even in the past few years. You know, I think for for the bulk of the 2010s, it kind of felt like Skyrim adjacent. And with Tears of the Kingdom and Elden Ring, it feels like the beginning of something new. Mm-hmm. And And it's ironic, I think, that the influence of the new wave is actually even further retro than the one before it it's also one's read on influence is 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 a little bit subjective too because like oh, totally yeah because again influence is also subconscious like you can you can directly say like yeah we were really going after these games with this game but we're influenced by everything in our life so it, it really it really is is open to interpretation like what is carrying forward sure and there's more than just games influencing games there's you know other art influencing games yeah you sort of touched on it earlier when you do one thing you want to do the other or or certain art influences other other art as well right so and that's wildly prevalent in in video games and thinking about your own experience of, of games and touching on the catalog that you've played and experienced and how things have influenced you know one another i want to learn about the games that have really inspired and influenced you you you've mentioned final fantasy 7 um and uh i think you briefly touched on mass effect and actually performing mass effect fan fiction uh, <laughs> i'm not gonna get in I, I mean maybe those are the ones but I'm, I'm curious uh just to clarify like that play was actually just very much like in space but then once we had written it we were both like we were both going after mass effect right <laughs> like that was just like mass effect fanfic in disguise Love it. but anyway i'm sorry you're you're asking me a question yeah just i'm curious what are the games that have really just inspired you or the, the ones that you go back to as like a, an anchor or, or something that really kind of opened your, your oh, mind yeah. at the time you've touched on a few already and you can rehash yeah. fine too 
Yeah, I mean, I think the two the two big ones that I think were big for a lot of people around my age were Final Fantasy VII and Ocarina of Time. I think Zelda in general, like a lot of those games are just like infinitely replayable. Wind Waker has always been my personal favorite. And I think that also has kind of influenced me uh, outside of just like, I want to play a good game, but like, I just love the spirit of Wind Waker. Like I love the sense of adventure and that like kind of approach to fantasy where that game is very, it's very unique within the Zelda catalog because it's, it's one of the more self-aware games, but it also is fully confident with what it's doing it's not self-aware in a sense that it's like mocking zelda but it really feels like a deconstruction of kind of zelda lore and what it means to be a reincarnation of like link ganon and zelda and each of those characters are kind of a fun flip on what you would expect and it's just beautiful like i think that game like it's i think there are more impactful zelda games in terms of like the effect they've had on like the industry like i imagine tears of the kingdom we're gonna see that ripple forward for a long time ocarina of time you know has had a tremendous influence on games wind waker i think is a little bit more niche but it's like specifically kind of the tone i i go after in a lot of my own writing and in a lot of my own artwork as well so wind waker's one of them the persona games i, I love revisiting uh, again i think there's something that kind of connects mass effect persona and three houses where like those games kind of have that life sim part of it that i've i really love games that have that and i've been really drawn more recently as i've started to learn a little bit about game design playing games that are like more on the visual novel side and more on even like the kinetic novel side uh, there's a game that came out recently called misericord that is like mostly just reading and cool visuals and cool music but there's just enough interactiveness that it feels like a game so i've been interested in kind of learning about like how far could you push that? Like where does the boundary between like this is just a comic book and this is a game kind of begin and end? But yeah, I mean, I think the the big ones for me on a personal level, uh, definitely Final Fantasy VII, Ocarina of Time, Wind Waker, uh, the Mass Effect trilogy, and I'm trying to think if there's any. I mean, Chrono Trigger, Chrono Cross, a lot of like '90s RPGs are like permanently in my heart and mind. So yeah, those are the big ones. What what is it about games that keeps you? just interested in. I, you sort of started getting in there a little bit and with um, Misericord. So yeah. with, with Misericord, it could be a basically a comic book. Uh, if you push if you push that sort of game to, I, I guess, like this most static version, you're, you, you've got a comic book. So why does, why does making it a game feel any different or more exciting? Like, what is it about that experience that's, that draws you more than, say, a graphic novel or a book or a movie? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I definitely, and I think it's not a coincidence that I'm also like, alongside games i'm i i am more likely to read a book or a comic than like go to the movies these days but i think it's really if i had to draw like a connection between like games and reading or in what it is what it is about playing a game that is like exciting to me it is the role of the player i i think there is something intimate psychologically about you know being the one in control or holding something close to you uh, or even when you're reading like the fact that it's up to you to like visualize what's happening you know you are kind of more of an active participant than you are in film or tv not to say that that's worse it's just different and i think i've, I've always been drawn to like being a participant in that story uh, and i think it can lead it to feeling really personal I think games, unfortunately, have a reputation for having like really toxic spaces online, and that's awful. But I also think it's the flip side of the fact that people feel 
a really personal connection to these games and in warped and disturbed cases maybe they feel an ownership over them and that's like not the right way to to think about it but i do think it's a symptom of just like when you invest that much time and money into into an experience and it's really just like you in the driver's seat it's hard not to just inherently feel emotionally invested like i think um going back to last of us not to spoil that game but in the very beginning you know in the flashback with joel's daughter the game very cleverly lets you play as his daughter like the first like and the game kind of tricks you into thinking like is this the girl on the cover like why am i playing as her and what ends up happening is i think way more impactful just simply because you were playing as her than it would be if you were just watching that cutscene. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit it's a little bit beyond description in terms of like what it is, but I do think there's something about the involvement of the player that like can raise the emotional potential of games a little bit higher than some other media for me. I think that was very well put. And I think I recall asking a question to uh, into the Aether at one point, and you might have given that a very similar answer. And I, I wanted to to make sure we capture that here too. This, I think back to you, to that, you know, I don't remember what the question was or, or how exactly it was answered, but I do recall you making a connection between books and, and games that was very, very unique. And, and again, you've just put it there once more of the agency that, that both of these mediums require rather than just sitting down and staring at a screen and watching it unfold in front of you. Right. But if you want that involvement, and I wasn't a big reader until I was probably 26 years old, but I oddly found that the, reading and games inhabit a very similar space for me. I can almost interchange them um, and get the same sort of fulfillment out of it. Books take a little more work because I'm trying to fill in the the gaps and the spaces with, you know, my imagination about what this world looks like and who these characters are, um, where games sort of fill that, that void for me and allow me to tinker and have fun. But either way, they're still filling that same sort of like excitement. What's around the corner. I don't know, but I get to be the one that, that, that builds this and, and creates that space. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you get out of fighting games? What is, what's that draw for you? Cause I, I you're like a, the RPG guy to me, the story guy, the narrative. And then all of a sudden you come bursting in with, uh, you know, third strike third, or yeah. guilty gear strive XRD rev two. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like it's like my inner jock. It's like, I'm like 90% <laughs> theater kid. And then there's like a, like a meathead somewhere within me. It was like, yeah, punch. I mean, I think fighting games, Going back to like, you know, my formative years, like that, that was always the social piece. Like, oh, sure. I think my first big fighting game was Tekken 3. And I played that all the time with my dad on PS1. We would like just sort of catch up while we did eight versus eight all random. And like, that was thrilling. And I, I think fighting games have always been kind of social for me, like Smash Brothers, obviously, Soul Calibur, you know, growing up with that. But more re- like, I think in college was sort of the turning point of like, this is a social party game to like, I'm interested in the mechanics of this was when Street Fighter 4 came out and uh, Marvel vs. Capcom 3. That was also, I think, just the time when interest in fighting games was starting to like percolate again. And now I think it's like more alive than ever, which is really cool to see. But I think for me, it's like, I love the focus on like, we're, it's all mechanical, you know, like it's almost, you know, being free of anything else is like kind of thrilling, but I think it's also on, on sort of my artist theater side, it's a full celebration of character. Like the cast in these games are always so ridiculous and so fun and so over the top that I love just being like, I'm going to choose someone based purely on vibe and like try to make this work with raw numbers, you know? So I just think it's that, it's that, 
And I think the music, like a lot of my favorite fighting games are really influential in terms of like the artwork and the music that I like, the atmosphere. I think because you have such few elements, the elements that are there have to be like at 11, you know? So it's hard to put into words. I also feel like what I'm learning is maybe I should just start watching wrestling because I feel like what I'm saying right now is all... (laughs) leading to that uh but yeah i I think it really is the focus on character that i think draws me specifically in so you played tekken with uh with your dad um and i've heard on the show on into the aether you you, your sister as well have had a bond over video games as well. yeah and and again you earlier mentioned that i think y'all had a nes in the house the old nintendo in the house you know at the time you were born so this has been prevalent within your family not just you it definitely hit me the hardest for sure. I, I've been thinking about that a lot because actually I, you know, I, I recently visited Jersey and I was with my mom and we, I brought my Switch and we, we always play Mario Kart when I'm home. She loves Mario Kart and she's always really loved like all the Nintendo stuff. And, you know, we had the PlayStation at my dad's house and he like, I think in retrospect, kind of just like put up with a lot of it, mm-hmm. but he also genuinely loved Tekken and he loved Resident Evil too. Like we played Resident Evil 2 like kind of cooperatively. Like we would figure out the puzzles together. Uh, underrated co-op game that's not actually present in the game, but it's fun to play with your dad. But all that to say, like I was, you know, the show comes up with them every now and then and they'll share what experience they have. You know, both my parents have a genuine interest in it. And I think if they were born a little bit later, I could see them both like having a place in their life for games. Cause they also mentioned being like really into arcades because they were both born in 1960. So like they were in their twenties during like the heyday of like Pac-Man and sort of the Namco Midway mm-hmm. arcade games. Mm-hmm. And they recently opened an arcade in my town where my mom lives and she said, we should go. So like, I, I do think it was something that they were both like fully interested in and enjoyed but i think it stuck around more for me than anyone else but it, it was nice like I, I i do appreciate that like everyone in my family was like you know no one kind of belittled it they were all really interested or at least like you know were content that it was like my thing I'm like that's nice Stephen could do his thing um one weird note that i'll give you is that like, I don't know what this means or what it represents, but whenever I was playing a game and my mom came in the room, she would say, this is like one of my dreams, which I still don't fully know what that implies, but I, I think she was dreaming of being a gamer. So, you know, it, it does it definitely runs in the family. That's how you take it. Dreaming Dream, of being a- dreams of the gamer. <laughs> Maybe those are nightmares now that I say it out loud, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, fam- all all the Hilgers are are into games in varying degrees. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Want to move towards thinking about the future of games and and sort of what keeps you interested in the medium today and what you're looking forward to going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. I love seeing the next big AAA stuff, but I really think the indie space is where my heart and attention is. Mm. The The big thing is like the tools to make games have become increasingly more available, which I think is, is a net positive. And that I think kind of raised, like it's not too distant of a memory to think about the first time I played Cave Story, uh, which I think came out in 2004. And that was in my experience, one of the first times I heard the phrase, indie game Mm. i didn't even know that could really exist the idea of just someone in their room making a game like i had played maybe like flash games online like as a kid or like homestar runner stuff stinko man incredible game but like seeing a game like cave story where like one person made this game that's like on the level of what nintendo makes this is wild 
and now we get cave stories like every week, which, you know, uh, like there, that is, you know, Metroidvanias are one of the most popular genres of, of games in that space. And that's amazing. And it's, I think what I'm excited about is where that's going, you know, and uh, it's interesting too, to see like when one thing that I've been thinking about is like when big publishers like Nintendo specifically stop making a certain kind of game what happens in the indie space like what indie developer will take that baton and and push it forward so like i think the classic example is stardew valley where like the harvest moon games had kind of they had kind of stopped and then stardew valley came out and now everyone is trying to make a farming sim life sim game um and eventually someone's gonna make the next big step you know like i i don't think we've seen it yet but i think i think we're going to and that's exciting i think again like kind of tracing inspiration we're at a time where like a lot of types of games that were maybe considered niche or had cult followings are now kind of becoming the mainstream direction for where games are headed like again like stardew valley but the other thing too that i'm excited about is just like the things that come out of nowhere you know, doing this show, like whenever we do our game of the year episode, we'll usually have a section where we're talking about like, what are you excited for this year? And there's always like, there's always going to be a new, you know, there's going to be a new Nintendo game. There's going to be a new Square game. Like we already kind of go into a year excited for like five or six things. But then you have stuff like Hades that that just drops. And that game was in early access for a long time. But like that felt like such a cool moment where this game came out and like, stole everyone's hearts and minds you know that's i think what i'm most excited for is what is what i have no idea is going to happen the unknown the unknown yeah it's a corny answer but like it really is true i mean i think doing this show like the games that just sort of drop and surprise us are always the most exciting i just think we're, we're at a really interesting point in game history i definitely feel like there needs to be a restructuring on how AAA games come out because they're just like ballooning in scope and cost and in a weird way that does create a better landscape for indies in some way because there's way bigger gaps where like these games are just not coming out but you know i i think uh what i would want to see the AAA space do not that they have to exist in separate realities but like i think looking at a game uh what was it called hi-fi rush i think was oh, a really right, right. yeah that was a really interesting example of like bethesda like compared to like elder scrolls 6 which might not even ever come out <laughs> and this is this like distant dream that like you know we'll see what happens with that and we'll probably get it in like 10 years um, and at that point, what do we even want? You know, like we just sort of project unsaid desires onto this thing that doesn't exist. And then it comes out and is not that. And it's just inherently disappointing. But Hi-Fi Rush comes out and is obviously not going after the same scope and height of a game like Elder Scrolls Six. But I think there's a lot of power in a game kind of knowing what its mission is, knowing exactly how long to be coming out that day and i i feel like the reception to that game would not be as strong if it was like two years of hype you know what i mean mm -hmm. and it's hard to know but i just i i just wonder if we need to start asking AAA to like pull it back in a little bit and make shorter more interesting stuff rather than like this game is the biggest thing ever always because that that is just unsustainable yeah and it sort of has to me at least it's lost its luster right like yeah right it's impressive at some level but at some level it's like i don't need i don't ever need that why 
my yeah. my life is, is is bigger than I will ever need it to like the world <laughs> the, the world we live in is bigger than I, I need it to be at some point. I don't need my game to do that too. Um, or going back to what you said about books as well, like I can build that universe in my head to be as big as I want it to, but it's really only about where my character needs to go to progress that story or you know whatever that that that's what's important, right? Just give me the core the core experience. Yeah, I don't mean to speak for everybody, obviously, but for me and myself, it's like I don't need no, but I, I don't think you're alone. I think there is like a general sense of fatigue with that because i think we've also learned that the games that feel big are better than the games that are totally good well said. you can even look at um elder scrolls 2 and 3 for that where elder scrolls 2 i actually i might be wrong but uh, but daggerfall is like technically one of the biggest games like the the raw size of the world is like like i think as big as like real life wyoming or something but it's all kind of copied and pasted and like you're not the game isn't benefiting from a big world whereas i think morrowind and skyrim specifically i know oblivion's my favorite but oblivion kind of has a little bit of daggerfall issues with the copy and pasted world but skyrim and morrowind uh, are big games but they feel big because there's a lot of stuff going on there are a lot of like right yeah they're curated exactly and i think elden ring and tears of the kingdom are smart in that like those games are also very impressive in in the scope of it but they also are interesting because we are engaging with stuff in the world like in tears of the kingdom we have all these powers that allow us to connect things and experiment and there's all these different settings that are so alive and so full of intriguing things and characters and Elden Ring uh you know we have obviously the combat to pull us in but we also have like so much actual mystery like Elden Ring is a game that will will remind you what fantasy mean or could mean like Final Fantasy 7 like everyone points to that moment where you walk out and you see the red sky of Kaled and it's just like, where am I? Like, I think genuinely feeling lost and scared in, in an open world game is an achievement, I think, <laughs> you know, because like, I, again, I think that wonder is kind of hard to do at this point because we're so kind of desensitized to, to scope, you know? That was part of my fear with Tears of the Kingdom coming out. Like I was right. one of the people where I, I I played and loved Breath of the Wild, but when Tears of the Kingdom was rolling around the corner, I was like, I don't know how excited I am about this. Like, I know it's going to be the same map basically, and there's going to be some bells and whistles, but like, is this really going to be that much more of a, am I going to get much more out of that experience than I got out of Breath of the Wild? And it turns out, in fact, uh, yes, I am. And I'm getting more <laughs> out of it than Breath of the Wild. Yes, I'm playing one of the three maps is the same. But the, there's, I think, a more curated experience in it where I and my time with games has changed dramatically in the last year, year and a half with my daughter and work and all of that. And so I have to find find games that are going to give me a lot with a little bit of time. Right. And with Tears of the Kingdom being such a massive game um, and knowing that because of Breath of the Wild, but I, I kind of jumped into it with some trepidation, but I can play that game and get the same out of it, whether I play for five minutes or two hours. Like, oh yeah, I can do yeah. enough in those those little moments of time with that game that feel like, oh yeah, I achieved something cool. I felt like I'd played that game for probably 60 hours already and I looked at my time played and it was only 25 hours. And that to me tells me there's like the, the, it's very dense. Dense, the density, yeah. yes, the density of what's happening in that game makes it feel like it's a much longer 
larger experience than it, than I'm actually having. And so I'm getting a lot more value out of that. So there's a few things with that, right? The value proposition of the game and the experience that I'm having, but there's also that the level of going back to unknown, you know, assuming I made an assumption that I thought I would know what this game is based on the previous one, the Breath of the Wild, but it has completely just blown my mind yet again. And I think it's hard to find a game, whether it's good or bad, a game that doesn't provide you some level of new experience or new thing it's trying to do. Um, I talked with uh, Naoko a few episodes about the same thing where, where like video games in general are always giving you something uh, something new and a lot of it has to do with that interaction or agency that's part of it but some of it times it's just the artwork or the music or, or whatever. There's so much going on with games that, that you are bound to find something novel in it for you know for a moment and I think that's what makes them at least fascinating for, for myself. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, I know some people who didn't fully click with Breath of the Wild that are loving Tears of the Kingdom and I think it's because if I had to kind of compare the two like in Breath of the Wild it's a very zen experience for a lot of it like you can really just get lost in like climbing a cliff for like several minutes as the wind blows by and here's the kingdom like you look in one direction you're like I could either build a bridge or help that Korok or dive into that glowing pit or, you know, like I give myself one mission and I end up with like three more if I walk in a direction, which it might sound overwhelming, but it's honestly, it's thrilling. Like it's a really incredibly designed game. So yeah, I, I think you're right to point out that like the time just feels longer in that game than it actually is. Yeah. And I think with that too, there's, you know, you initially start feeling maybe that's the way it's brilliantly designed. You don't feel that over that being as overwhelmed in the beginning. You feel like you have a very sort of narrow path. People are kind of guiding you in, the, in a certain direction. The NPCs are saying, do this, do this, do this. And if you do that, you start naturally coming across those moments where there's like three things that I can see that I could do right now. But you realize as soon as I do one of those, there's going to be another three things. And you're never going to, that that feeling of like, well, if I do that one, am I going to forget about these other two? It kind of doesn't matter because you're just going to find two more things to do. And like, if you just let that carry you through the game, it's it's really kind of a special experience, right? I'll come, I'll loop back to those things that I missed at some point. I'm sure I'll, I'll find them one day. Yeah. But there's going to be something new and exciting right around the corner regardless, right? So. Right. Versus kind of like a checklist of just stuff you feel like obligated to do, but totally. you don't really want to, you totally. know? Yeah. There's an excitement in seeing the new thing. I guess maybe my last question. I know you all, uh, uh, Into the Aether has been on a break. As we mentioned earlier, you're coming back in, I would think by the time this episode launches, you've already come back. So welcome back. Yeah. This show's been great. I love, you. You, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I love the new season, the Dreamcast. What a cool, what a cool, uh, <laughs> wow. Amazing. But I, I'm curious how you have felt, how, how you found this break to be. Has it been helpful for you? Have you, again, changed changed the way you've been playing games? Yeah. So I guess for full context, like Brendan and I uh, record every week and like every blue moon, we might do like a double because we have to like, you know, one of us will be busy. We usually record on Sundays. So like, you know, we, we have had to reschedule, but basically in our five years of doing the show, we've, we've never taken more than like a week off. So it was really, it was kind of weird to like, it's been such a constant. I think we both kind of struggled to like uh not want to record something together <laughs> like uh like I, when our when our break quote unquote began i think uh we were still preparing for our paper mario bonus and then we recorded that you know a week after we announced the hiatus and then i recorded something with brendan for his show wavelengths which was all about game news and that was a lot of fun but that was kind of almost like an accidental into the other episode um and then we had to pivot to prepping for the dreamcast episode which we recorded in early july 
So like we announced the hiatus and everyone was really supportive and like, enjoy your time off. But those, those first few weeks were like full Dreamcast prep mode, which was a lot of fun, but it was also like, I had to really make time for that. It's felt like actually a break this past week. Uh, you know, we, we come back on August 2nd. That's when the Dreamcast episode is coming out. And then we're going to start recording again after that. I'm honestly really excited. Like I, I think what I've learned taking a break is I just, I miss doing the show. You know, I'm glad I'm glad we did it because I think we also both had really busy summers. So I think if we hadn't taken this time off, it would have like conflicted with the show. But in terms of how it's affected my time with games in the last like, you know, after we recorded Dreamcast, I was able to like I, I'm like, I don't actually have to play anything now. I can play whatever I want. And it's been nice. I mean, it's it's kind of it hasn't been too different. I'm still just playing whatever I want. I still have an instinct to check out games I haven't played before, but it's been nice to kind of indulge and like, cause you know, I think there's always something in the back of my head where it's like, okay, I have time for like one game to play a lot of that. I'm not going to bring to the show. Uh, you know, like if it's just something that I want to play for fun, I don't necessarily want to talk about or like something I've already talked about and don't really have more to say about. And then there's also like, Oh, I need to make time for whatever the bonus is. So it's been nice to just not have that pressure and like fully uh, I've been playing Persona 4 Golden again because I've never played that iteration of the game and I got it on Steam Deck like a year ago. And I've unlike the first time I played where I just binged it, I've been kind of like slowly chipping away at it. So I think it's been it's been nice to just be able to play something at my own pace and not feel like I have to like stop what I'm playing to make time for something else. But honestly, like I think the remarkable thing is it's not noticeably different. I think like we've done a pretty good job maintaining again, that sort of like organic interest with the show that I I'm kind of doing that on my own time as well. But I also don't feel like there is a little bit of pressure to be like, okay, what are you bringing this week? And not having that has allowed me to just sort of like take a more leisurely pace with some games and to also kind of get like some time with my backlog that like isn't related to an episode or a bonus. Do you ever feel burnt out playing games in general? Seems um, to be a medium of choice. Yeah, very rarely. I think there have been times uh, for like really tight deadlines I think I think we got I got pretty close with the Paper Mario episode. Like I, I wasn't able to finish that game. Uh, like I got to the very end, and Will and and Brendan had finished it, but I I was like on the last chapter and didn't get to finish it. And like I loved my time with that game, but I did feel like I feel like I would be enjoying this more if I wasn't like kind of crunching it a bit to get done with it. And that that was also kind of one of the reasons why we not necessarily that episode, but like we just kind of saw how much we were we were assigning ourselves. And I think taking a hiatus and thinking about the structure of the show and if we wanted to like tweak anything to make sure that we're always enjoying the process. That's always been really important to us. And I, yeah, very, very rarely do I feel like, uh, I got to play video games. Like it's usually, I think it comes off on the show that we're like enjoying what we're doing. On that note, I do think I am going to wrap it up. Unless there's anything else you want to bring up or say, again, the purpose of the show, why the hell do any of us care about this at all? <laughs> um, as much as we do. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good reason for it. And you brought up a lot of good reasons here. Anything else you want to bring up? Honestly, just thank you for having me. I mean, like this is for context. Like I haven't recorded since the Dreamcast episode. So you're catching me like in the thick of my break. So I, I, I am glad you trusted me to come on the show and, and be a solid guest. But I had a great time. Like I, I really love this show. I think it's a great topic to discuss because it, it is like kind of the elephant in the room. You know, it's a new enough thing that it's worth exploring 
why there's this passion for it past like it's fun or it makes money. So I, I had a great time. I just, I appreciate you having me on. All right, Stephen Paul Hilger, I'm going to let you go. Uh, you, you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you once again. And thank you for everything you do on, on Into the Aether and otherwise. I wish you well in your endeavors of game development and, and getting into that. Uh, that's a whole other thing we could have gone down the road of, but I'll let you... Uh, I'll just do on that a little bit. Yeah, I'm still very early on in that. So I think that might be a conversation for like maybe in like a year or two. We can, we can talk about that because yeah, uh, yeah, right yeah. now it's like it's pretty cool to learn. So I'll come back when I have more hard data for you. Perfect. Sounds good. Well, on that note, um, you have a wonderful evening. Thanks again. You too. And uh, take it easy. Bye, Kyle. My thanks to Stephen Paul Hilger for taking the time to chat. If you haven't listened to the Brendan Bigley or AJ Filari episodes of Why Button, those would be great follow-ups to this interview, but maybe even better would be to just subscribe to Into the Aether. So I have a little announcement. This is the last episode of what I'm calling season one of Why Button. I don't have any concrete plans for season two, but that's the point of season two. Instead of doing bi-weekly episodes, I'm going to post episodes as they come. Maybe the next episode drops tomorrow, or maybe it's two years from now. It's anyone's guess. I still have a list of folks I'd like to interview and some who've already agreed, but life just keeps getting in the way. And that's the point. I'm going to focus my attention on life for a bit. When I started this show, I needed it. I was in a rut and needed a creative outlet. Well, I've had some really positive life changes recently and my time to work on the show has become more and more limited. Until things calm down a bit, I'm gonna fit it in as time permits, when I want and can do it. As I take a little break, I wanna recommend checking out the podcast My Perfect Console by Simon Parkin. Simon is one of my favorite writers and games critics, and the show is very much doing something similar to Y Button, albeit with some very notable guests. You should also check out the aforementioned Into the Aether and DLC from previous guests Christian Spicer and Lana Bashinsky. If you enjoyed this episode or the show, please share it with a friend. The easiest thing to do is to share the website whybutton.online. It includes links to the most popular podcast platforms. I'd also appreciate a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else supports that kind of thing. If you want to get in touch, ask me questions, or recommend future guests, feel free to reach out to whybuttonpodcast at gmail.com or on Mastodon at whybutton at mastodon.social. You can also find me on Mastodon at kylestar at mastodon.social. I'm also on threads at underscore kylestar. This episode was produced by the very talented AJ Filari. Thanks again, AJ, for being part of season one. Our theme song was written by Childstar, who's me, featuring my friend Scott Wilkie. It's called On the Same Page, and you can find it on all streaming platforms. Thanks again for listening to Y Button. And remember, when you press Y, ask why. Why?